Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is our league, and this is your league. From the 55-yard line on CFL America Radio and the Sports History Network. This is a league of A's and B's. It's green and red and gold and black and blue. This is a league with two official languages and many unofficial languages. It's East versus West, wheat versus iron, love versus hate. This is a league where superstars are extraordinary and ordinary at the same time. It's a league of ice, of fog, of mud and wind. And for one Sunday in November, it's the nation's glue. This is a league as diverse as a country, a league of Jacksons and Kwongs, Johnsons, Moscas, O'Shea's, and Haji Razulis. This is his league, his league, her league, their league, and their league. It's my league, and it's your league. This is our league. Welcome to From the 55-Yard Line here with Scott and Greg. And today we are joined by Joe Zimba, noted author, noted football author, and researcher and historian here in Chicago, who has written two books, When Football Was Football, A Complete History of the Chicago Cardinals, and Cadets, Cannons, and Legends, The Football History of the Morgan Park Military Academy. Joe, like myself, lives in Chicago. And Joe wrote, wrote Joe, you wrote, a great book years and years ago. Well, I would say years and years ago, but years ago, we'll go there on the yeah. Chicago Cardinals and uh, wanted to have you on today because, you know, we are, we've got Hall of Fame week here with the NFL coming up. And as I posed at the end of our last podcast, I have, I'm of the opinion, and I've shared this with Scott, that uh, the Hall of Fame really should be in Chicago, the foot, Pro Football Hall of Fame. And I pose it to you right off the bat. Do you agree with me or not? And if you do, help me present the case. <laughs> Greg, Greg and Scott, thank you. And boy, you start out with a tough one right away. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, we enjoy that. If you look back at the history of pro football and the team started it, of course, we had what Chicagoans think is the East Coast, which was Ohio and Pennsylvania at the start of it. And then all the teams that were congregated right in the Chicago area, and there were several of them. And, and one would think when the Hall of Fame was started, and thank good it was started, uh, that Chicago would have been given more of a look as possibly the host of a Hall of Fame. Not only had the 
Decatur Staley's, who became the Chicago Bears in 1921, but the oldest team of all, the Chicago Cardinals, my favorite. We had a team called the Chicago Tigers. And the Hammond pros right across the state line, when Hammond is closer than the suburbs are to Chicago itself, we had Rock Island. So there's all sorts of teams right in the area that might have been given a, a little stronger look as to, hey, Chicago with the size of it and the history of it. And the teams that were part of the early, early NFL might have been a, a really a good reason to have a Hall of Fame in Chicago. And just this, you know, the small amount of research or the homework I've done, you know, getting ready for this. I mean, Chicago almost had sort of a, an international soccer vibe in the, in the sense that, you know, there are cities in Europe that, you know, where soccer teams kind of grow organically. And, and that kind of seemed like what it was like in and around Chicago. I mean, it, it seems like there was just so many amateur teams that popped up. There were that we had the, the professional teams and the semi-pro teams that were organized in the Chicago football league. And you mentioned soccer in 1917, there was a strong, strong bid to start a professional soccer league uh, starting in Chicago. And even back in, I think of Charles Comiskey, the owner of the white Sox. but getting back to football teams were on every block and that's where the teams got their names. When we talk about the Racine Cardinals, which was the first name of the Cardinals, that name came because their headquarters of their president, Chris O'Brien, was on Racine Avenue. So we had streets, uh, street names that teams use called the Westerns were on there. We had the Halsteads and different parts of the city took the name of the streets. But there's a lot of different ethnic neighborhoods. They all seem to have their own football teams. And if you wanted to watch football, whether it be more organized, which were the professionals, so to speak, or the semi or just the Prairie League, there was plenty to choose from. So there were literally hundreds of football teams in Chicago Around that time from 1900 to 1920, when the uh, National Football League started as the American Professional Football Association. And so the Cardinals, and we'll talk about our favorite, our, both mm -hmm. our favorite NFL team. The Cardinals started, you know, 20 years before the NFL was even founded. Can you tell us the story of kind of how that came to, how that all came to be? And, you know, I know you and I have had this talk and at your presentations here in the city that I've gone to and where we met originally, there's that issue of when, what year were the Cardinals actually founded? Can you tell us that, kind of that oh, whole story? Oh boy. Yeah. My favorite topic besides the Cardinals themselves. If you look in any history book, you'll see that the Cardinals started in 1898 the Hall of Fame lists that date and the Cardinals themselves and their website list 1898. It's incorrect. Um, they started in 1899. Even the name was incorrect. Uh, we, we were told in the ex existing history that it was the Morgan Athletic Club started and by owner Chris O'Brien. And Chris O'Brien at the time was a teenager and he was just part of a group of kids who got together as the Morgan Athletic Association in 1899. And for the book that we did a few years ago, a few centuries ago, we were able to document the very first game they played against a team called the Shermans on the south side of Chicago in 1899. So it was just a bunch of teenagers that got together. Uh, for some reason, the, the years got uh, switched around over the years. And the next book I have coming out next year, which is the forgotten history of the Bears and the Cardinals, we talk about how this uh, misinformation came about, which, which started in the 1940s, long after Chris O'Brien was part of the team. 
But it was 1899 as the Morgan Athletic Association. It changed to become part of the Morgan Athletic Club in 1900. And what the athletic clubs were on the south side or the north side were places where gentlemen could get together and engage in sporting events like dancing or boxing or track and field. Some had football but it was a place to go to get together because there wasn't much social life that they could, they could do. And so these athletic clubs became very proud and very prosperous over the years. In fact, one of the original starters, I should say, or founders of the Cardinals was a gentleman called Frank Reagan, who became very active in politics in Chicago as a Cook County commissioner. He was also, unfortunately, the leader of the Reagan's Colts, which was affiliated with Al Capone in the 1920s. But we don't hear much about that. But he was one of the founders of the Cardinals. And then uh, from the Morgan Athletic Club, we had the next major change uh, in 1901. The team was called Cardinals Athletic Club or Athletic Association, I believe. So um, the story that's been told is that the name Cardinals came from Chris O'Brien buying uniforms from the University of Chicago and then saying, oh, the color of these is not really red. It's more Cardinals. So we're going to take the name Cardinals. So that unfortunately is not accurate either. And I've done, because I have no life, I've done some research on that and looked into Amos Alonzo Stagg's records at the University of Chicago, which are quite comprehensive. And there's no mention in his financials of selling any jerseys. Uh, but the jerseys that we see in photos that exist from the Athletic Club or the Cardinals and from the University of Chicago don't really match. So uh, if they were in color, we could tell a little better, but they're all black and white. So that again, we're going to explain in this next book that the name Cardinals didn't come from the color of a uniform. It just came from the startup of a, an athletic club called the Cardinals Athletic Club way back when at the beginning of the 20th century. Well, that's, and, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Greg. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead, Scott. No, I was just, uh, that's an interesting story about the uniforms because last 15 years I was working in the upstate of South Carolina and covered Clemson football. So when I was kind of trying to do a, crash course on their football program supposed their original jerseys were old used auburn university uh jerseys and oh. auburn was blue and orange but supposedly it had you know been faded by the sun and that's why uh clemson wore purple and orange so hearing <laughs> that story it's like oh i wonder if this is like just an urban legend you know that yeah. follows football around yeah, and that's probably what happened. These urban legends continue to grow. They're picked up and uh, they started somewhere. So that's what my goal was. And actually the first name of the Cardinals was the Cardinals Social and Athletic Club was the official name. But the stories that started in the 40s and 50s just get picked up every year. And I don't blame people because when I'm researching and I look up and I'll try and find an original source for something. And if it's from the Cardinals and it says they started in 1898, well, yeah, I'm going to believe that. Why would they have the wrong information there? But again, I think that's why all of us who are involved in research do that sort of thing is we want to get to the truth if necessary. And it really doesn't matter. But for me, uh, I was happy to find out that the Cardinals, <clears throat> when they actually started, uh, was 1899. <clears throat> oh, yeah, I love it when you start going down rabbit holes like that. I mean, to <laughs> me, it's great because you do. You find out stuff that you weren't even looking for but might even be more interesting than what you were looking for. And rabbit hole is another good term. And I find myself researching now because when I did this first book it was still by the old fashioned microfilm. 
and microfilm oh, was great, but where do you find it? And is it accessible? And in Chicago, the Chicago History Museum is the place, as far as I'm concerned, they have, I shouldn't tell anybody because they'll find out about it. They have all <laughs> these old neighborhood newspapers still on microfilm, but now you can subscribe to newspapers.com or newspaper archives. And I almost feel guilty when I'm looking at stuff, but then you start fading away. You see, I'm going to look up this person. And that leads to another story. And all of a sudden, here I am two hours later, I'm so far away from what I'm supposed to be writing about because I found so much stuff when I jumped into that rabbit hole you know, of football and uh, just keep going. But yeah, so sometimes, yeah, you got to pull yourself back and find out what your original objective was. And how about, you know, in just terms of the research process, how about with the libraries? I mean, obviously, Chicago Public Library um, downtown, down there off of state is... Um, you know, huge. Did you spend time at the Chicago Public Library or any of, say, in the, the outlying suburban libraries, like what you and I have? Was that part of your research there, too? Yeah, and the Chicago Public Library, the Washington Library, has great archives as well. And it's so well organized that you can go in online and see what they have. But for this uh, both football, pro football books, my first one and this now my third book, I relied on, um, I'm looking for information on high schools and neighborhoods. And they have neighborhood files there, especially for Englewood High School, where players that uh, joined the NFL, uh, another story about the high school players. Joining the league in 1925 for one game, and there's a big scandal, which we'll address pretty thoroughly in this next book. But uh, the Chicago Library has a Cook County records and meetings of minutes going back to 20. So that was extremely helpful as well. And then the local libraries, and I'm thinking, for example, Blue Island has microfilm of the local Blue Island papers that I've used. And even where I'm at in Frankfurt has some microfilm. But you look for the local libraries that might have that local paper that nobody else has. Uh, I use that a lot in my last book because it was mostly about Chicago high schools. And you could go in there and uh, look up games and verify games and scores that you might not be able to get elsewhere. So I do enjoy the old microfilm process and I rejoice when I find something. I remember way back when, when I found out that first Cardinals game, I wanted to jump up and down, but had to be polite and observe the decorum and not scream and shout. And I said, wait, I want to tell someone I found the Titanic. I found when the Cardinals first started <laughs> right here. And it was in the South side sun of a broad, what do they call it? A broad spread paper, which was probably about three feet high with a four point type that you had to read through every single line and hope they mentioned one of the football games you're looking for. So, but I behave myself. You guys would be proud of me. And, um, you know, in, in the research, let's, and there's so much to cover here. So I'm going to maybe hit and miss on some stuff because I'm just, questions are popping into my head as we're talking. Um, so, you know, it wasn't too long ago I was driving, um, you know, out here by Forest Park, driving by Proviso East or Proviso West. I can't remember. Yeah. Anyway, it's one of the provisos. And I pointed to the, the football field. And my wife, and all I had was the audience was my wife. And I go, yeah, the Cardinals, the, the, you know, the NFL Cardinals played a game there at Proviso. Now, of course, my wife really could have cared less. But it was just that, you know, in terms of venues for that early NFL, the Cardinals, even before they even went to the NFL, there's a lot of football stadiums here in the Chicago area 
that are really historic. Oak Park mm-hmm. High School being one of them, the one out at, uh, at Proviso. Where the Cardinals, where did they make their home? And I know they are a South Side team. So on this, where did they, where have they called home in Chicago, I guess, is kind of the, the general question I'm getting at. Oh, yeah, they had uh, a few homes, but I love that you brought up Proviso because in the early 30s, the Cardinals played a game there to dedicate the stadium. And it was a big deal with bands and cheerleaders and the whole town turned out to, to see this uh, game with the, with the Cardinals playing. Cardinals won fairly easily. But back to your question, when they started out playing, um, we always hear that they played at Normal Park way back when in 1900. In fact, you'll see that on, on a lot of the websites that have the history, but Normal Park wasn't built till 1915. But it's confusing because there was a second more Normal Park uh, over on 59th and Halstead, I believe, which would have been about a, a mile or so east of where, uh, or half mile from Racine Avenue, where Normal Park is today. So they played there. They played on a, a patch of grass called the Woods um, on Wood Street, I believe. Uh, for a while, they didn't have any stands. They would rope off the area and pass the hat around so the players could get paid, hopefully. They uh, did play at Comiskey Park. Uh, as we talked earlier, Comiskey before the name changes, then went back to Normal Park. Uh, played in 1959 in Soldier Field one year when it was pretty much falling apart, but that was at the end of the, the Cardinals' reign since they moved in March of 1960 to St. Louis. But they kept pretty much on the south side. A big controversy was in 1959 when the Cardinals wanted to move up to Dyke Stadium uh, at Northwestern University and prompted a lawsuit from George Hallis, who referred to some kind of agreement called the Madison Street Agreement from 1931 that the uh, owner of the Cardinals named Dr. David Jones at the time and Hallis uh, contracted that uh, the Bears would not play south of Madison Street and the Cardinals would not play north of Madison Street. And Commissioner Burt Bell, he upheld that. And so the Cardinals were not allowed to move into the Northwestern field. And that prompted their move ultimately a couple months later uh, to St. Louis. So that would have been one of the big changes. But they pretty much played at uh, Comiskey Park uh, from the late mid-20s all the way till uh, 1958. Except in 1930s, and this is a big one a lot of people don't know about, the Cardinals moved to Wrigley Field, who the north side of Chicago, the south side fans couldn't believe it. But at the time, the Cardinals thought move to Wrigley Field, maybe we'll get some of the big crowds that the Bears are getting. And crowds really weren't that big then. If they got five to 10,000, they were very happy for a pro football game. But the Cardinals moved there and leave in 1931, stayed through the entire decade before moving back to Comiskey Park, never quite drew the fans. Unfortunately, they alienated, alienated their home base who uh, couldn't believe that their team was going up to the dreaded and sinister north side of Chicago. But that's what happened. So we had uh, Comiskey Park and Wrigley Field and Soldier Field were the main ones, along with Normal Park, is where the Cardinals played throughout their history. And of, and of sure. course, oh, this sorry, was right, during, right. Oh, no, uh, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is during an era, too. You know, we're talking, you know, state, city stadiums. Chicago 
uh, public, you know, we have public transportation in the city now, but back then public transportation was literally everywhere. You had trolley yeah, cars, yeah. you had trains, you had the L and I don't, I'm, did the L all go all the way down to, to say 35th? Back it did. Yeah, it went farther. It did go into the Englewood neighborhood where the Cardinals were at 63rd right. Street as well. And if I, if, if memory serves me correctly, just even driving around, I mean, there are, there are, I mean, the L that we have now is just a shadow of its former self. There were many more branch lines back in the day, correct? Yes, yes. Yeah, that's they... what I, that, yeah, that's what I thought. So, you know, back then, I mean, for a team to literally pack up and move, to the other side of the city in this day and age, it's not a big deal. Teams do it all the time, but back then it was a huge deal because it wasn't, it wasn't easy to get from the North side to the South side. I mean, you had, you had to make a few transfers along the way. (laughs) Right. Yes. Yeah. It it was uh, amazing that they did that and the the difficulties they had and the one big difficulty, which made it inconvenient, being for fans is because they shared Wrigley Field with the Cubs. And for example, I think it was 1935, the Cubs were in the World Series. Uh, they shared it with the Bears. And so guess who gets the worst choices for, uh, for dates? And so the Cardinals were often would have to spend the first several weeks season on the road uh, until they got a chance to play maybe their first home game in November at Wrigley Field. But it was tough on the fans they could get there if they really want to put the effort in. But then if it's November and it seemed like that time, it really got colder in Chicago a little earlier. Um, not that it's not cold every day of the year. We have a month of summer now, Greg. So, but uh, the fans would have to not only take all these different ways of transfers to get there, but also sit in the cold for a while in a pretty much vacant Wrigley field. So you didn't have many bodies there to warm it up with you. I know I'm all over the map here, but I, I was curious when you were talking about the stadium issue and then, you know, that kind of helped lead the move to St. Louis. Were there other cities that were possibilities that the Cardinals were going to move to, or was it always kind of going to be St. Louis? I think St. Louis was actually a surprise. There had been talk earlier of Buffalo because they played some exhibition games there. Atlanta, there was in the 50s, San and Francisco was mentioned. Um, so there were several other cities. And the St. Louis thing, I think, came up as a, sort of a compromise when uh, Lamar Hunt tried to buy the Cardinals, was unsuccessful, and decided, of course, to start this other league. And, and the NFL wanted to keep um, the AFL out of St. Louis. And so the talk was then to get the Cardinals or someone else to move there. And to help convince the Cardinals, they were given a half a million dollars, big bucks in 1960. And some of the stories say uh, that George Hillis put up a lot of that. And one of the reasons was that he no longer would be burdened by blackout TV. So if one team was at home, the other team might be on the road. You couldn't televise their games. Sometimes it got complicated as to what games could be televised. But in those very early days of Chicago uh, television in Chicago and elsewhere, it was very important to be able to broadcast your games to your fans who couldn't make to make it to the to the game. Although I, I saw a good George Hallis once that said that he saw really no no future in this television why would people sit in their living room watching a little box and of course i guess he's been proven wrong over the years <laughs> yeah, i think the league's made a few bucks from tv yeah and then when you have a hundred million people or so watching the super bowl now maybe george is reconsidering that 
opinion. Well, you know, thinking back about it too, you know, during that time period, obviously the blackout rules didn't change really until the last 20 years now. No. Has it been almost 20 years now? In terms of sellouts and everything, there's oh, little, right. the, the blackout correct. restrictions have all but lifted. And so, you know, talking about, you know, going back, we'll go back before, uh, let's, let's go back to say the 1930s and everything. Why, why people want, have always wondered, it's like, oh, Chicago, Soldier Field's always been the home of the Bears. No, it hasn't. And so yeah. my question to you is, why was Wrigley Field such an attractive venue versus Comiskey Park? Well, the biggest thing was the price. As you may have heard, George Ellis was a little tight with the wallet. You know, sometimes he'd open that wallet and his dollar bills would blink in the light. George Washington would blink in the light. He hadn't opened it. But that's an old story. I apologize. But he had a great deal starting back in 1921 for bringing the team up where there was a, a fee that they had to pay a fat fee, a flat fee for rental. But if they didn't hit a certain amount of attendee, then the percentage would go down. So it was really a good deal. He could practice there, could store stuff there. Uh, he had part of the concessions. 100% of the programs, except for a small percentage that went to the folks who actually sold the programs. And that was really their only other opportunity for income was attendance and selling your programs and the advertising in, in, in it. So uh, quite interesting that, that he ended up there, but it was attractive, I think, from a money standpoint. Plus, as we mentioned earlier, the crowds were not that big the first 40 years or so of the NFL. And so Soldier Field, which had... 127,000, I think, for a Notre Dame game there once and the annual Chicago High School Prep Bowl would traditionally draw over 100,000. So the Bears might have looked microscopic out there, even if they had their big crowds of 10,000 in Soldier Field. So, yeah, it was available. It opened up, I think, 1924 or so, and the Bears didn't really move there till I'm thinking, 1971. So, so it was there, but... Uh, by that time, Wrigley was, I believe, the smallest NFL stadium. So it moved him to, to look for a bigger spot. And, of course, they were getting bigger crowds and it made it worthwhile. So I'm not sure what his contract was with Soldier Field, but it couldn't have been quite as attractive as it was with Wrigley Field. Right. And, you know, back then, I mean, the, the Soldier Field we see now, and I'm not even going to get into my comments about the way it is now, <laughs> but back when we were all kids, I mean, it looked so much different. It was truly, yeah. it was on par with say LA Memorial Coliseum mm -hmm. in terms of not only attendance, but just the way it looked. I mean, it was a truly classical. I mean, it was a, a true, it was a Coliseum more, more than, you know, and it was built in for, I think to try to attract the Olympics at one point, correct? It may have been. Yeah. Back in the twenties. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, talking about the Cardinals, you know, the Cardinals trying to basically when I read the Cardinals history, it always seems that they've always they've been constantly searching for home in mm -hmm. terms of whether it be at Normal Park, which is now a police station for those of people who don't <laughs> <Yeah>. know. <laughs> um, and um, but, you know, they were at Comiskey and the crowds they drew at Comiskey were I mean, tell me about the crowds at Comiskey. I mean, they were, they didn't, they drew, but back then they didn't play in, you know, an equal home versus road schedule. Explain to, explain to us in terms of how it worked for the Cardinals. I mean, they played a lot of their games on the road. 
They did a, a lot. And again, maybe it was unfavorable uh, circumstances financially for them. They did draw some nice crowds in the 50s, but they weren't getting what the Bears did. And their biggest crowd every year was the Chicago Bears when they visited Comiskey Park. So it, it just seemed that they were better off because I've read a few times where the Cardinals could not make the guarantee for the visiting team. So if they decided they're going to go on the road, 40s or the 50s, they would get a certain amount of a guarantee, which would have been more profitable than if they had hosted a game and paid all the expenses plus paid the visiting team and then worried about the attendance having to be a certain amount to break even. So I think that had a lot to do with it was the finances. And maybe, maybe about that time, he was looking more seriously about moving. There had been an ownership change when Charles Bidwell passed away in April of 1947 and his wife remarried. Walter Wolfner, who was not a football person, made some controversial, if maybe questionable decisions about the team and what they were doing. But um, it, it just does that they were looking for that home and Comiskey Park seemed like the only alternative for them that they could possibly afford. So they went on the road a lot and got that guaranteed money. And uh, obviously the University of, and people who don't know, University of Chicago had a very giant, you know, very large football stadium. It did, yeah. Back in the day. And obviously that being, you know, that's another, you know, great institution on the South Side, the University of Chicago, for people who have never been there. It is it is one of the most beautiful college campuses I've ever been to. Mm -hmm. And um, but back then they had, you know, the, the big large stadium for the football team. But the Cardinals used to practice there, from what I understand. They they at least got yeah. to, to use the practice facilities there. Um, so how long were they at the university of Chicago? Do you recall in terms of how, how long did they, did they did, where did they practice? I guess is the question I'm going for. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's funny because, uh, as you and I first met, I do these presentations around town and, um, uh, before the COVID I did one on Downers Grove, I think. And there's a gentleman there, 97 years old. And he recalled where they played at a park on the south side. So there are numerous parks and smaller stadiums that they would use. Normal Park, as we mentioned, was uh, gone by 1950 and became that police station we talked about. So they did play at, at parks from the city of Chicago. They uh, afterwards could practice at uh, Comiskey Park after the baseball season, same as the Bears. And they did spend some time at the University of Chicago. I'm not sure how long they, they were there. University dropped football in 1938. I'm not sure when that stadium was uh, removed. Um, of course, it served during World War II as the invention of the atom was done there uh, underneath the stands, which is a famous story about the University of Chicago football stadium. So it was various. And I think wherever the Cardinals could find a place, whether it was uh, mostly on the south side, uh, they would practice. And sometimes they played up at uh, Lane Tech High School, uh, Loyola High School. They played uh, some preseason up there and had some practices. So it was pretty much wherever they could find uh, that elusive home. That's where they would practice either in preseason or during the season. You guys were talking about gate receipts earlier. And I, I was curious during that era, did, was it kind of like the wild west where whichever teams played that they are the ones that figured out gate receipts or did the, did the NFL sort of have a plan of, of how they wanted it to work? Yeah, it was, um, Pretty interesting. One of the things that I'm addressing quite heavily in my new book are the papers from 
Dutch Sterneman, who was a partner in the Bears from 1920 to about 1931 or so, I should say 1921, and he kept the records for the Bears. And it shows that the team, the home team, pretty much kept the records. And they're very distinct. They're very comprehensive in terms of how they spent their money. And to me, it was really amazing and eye-opening to, to get a look at uh, and a peek at these records that he kept financially. So we now know what the Bears paid and salary for people like Bronco Nagurski some of their big stars and how little they paid a lot of the players. Uh, we, we find out that perhaps George Hell wasn't always honest in his appraisal of their financial situation. Um, but it was pretty much, they always had a guarantee. Every contract would, and, and taking a step back, track would give a team an offer of say $1,200 or 40% say of the, of the gate of the net gate after rent was paid for the stadium. So it gave the, the team who was coming into Chicago kind of a, a choice. If they're going to play the bears, they would probably take a percentage of the gate. If they're playing Cardinals, they would maybe just take the guarantee knowing the gate wouldn't be that good. So I don't think the NFL and I could be wrong. We'll probably hear about it was uh, totally involved except for establishing a more of a traditional contract for the teams and Joe Carr, who was that very, very, uh, very influential president of the league after Jim Orp served one year, he was the one who really brought it up to speed in terms of classing it up and getting rid of college players uh, having contracts between the teams and trying to to make it into a more professional league to compete somewhat with uh, professional major league baseball and the way things were scheduled and the world series, et cetera, and how funding was divided. So uh, that was one of the things, but the, the Sterneman records are just fantastic in terms of allowing us to get finally a look into the finances of the early years of the national football league. And so the old joke about Hal is throwing around nickels like manhole covers. <laughs> there was a reason for it. They were operating on the edges. They were, you know, it's, it's still one of my favorite. And I've heard other people eat, you know, so apparently it's a term used everywhere. But yeah. that is one of the more famous quotes about George Hallis. Um, you know, in terms of profession, and I, I was listening to your podcast this morning, your last one where you talked about the college all-star game. And, and I was thinking, and as I was sitting there, as I was listening, I go, why, and I, why did, why was professional baseball so socially accepted, but professional football was not what, where did that stem from? Because it was, you know, I mean, obviously professional baseball, especially in Chicago has been around since right after the civil war. Yeah. Yeah. And, but yet professional football was looked down upon. And yet, and you know, throw throw this throw the next thing is, but college coaches, football coaches, were getting paid a ton back then. Mm-hmm. Where did that kind of stem from? Help 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 me help me try to understand that. Yeah, that's a a great great question. I'll give you my opinion. Uh, for, for something when pro football started, it was looked down upon as a dirty, nasty game that was run by criminals and thugs just trying to take advantage, as I mentioned my podcast, of these poor players. And it was thought that the college football players, unlike baseball players, had a college education when it was not so prevalent in our society. And so they were expected to get a good job as an accountant or a teacher, or perhaps move on and become a lawyer, a doctor, and never, ever, ever play football. 
And so that was uh, one big thing. But then you'd have coaches come out against like Stag, as we've talked about from the University of Chicago. Very, very influential. And I think it was 1921 or 23. He came out with uh, kind of an editorial that he released nationwide over the wire service was talking about how horrible pro football was. And then if you go to one of their Sunday games, you're committing to supporting this horrible, horrible entity that's going to crush college football and all the joy and all the spirit of it. And so it got picked up and it was for years and years that people like Stag would keep pounding away at pro football. His players, it was said, were so afraid of him that they would uh, disguise themselves and if they were going to play a pro football game under different names, but there's a famous story I mentioned in my first book about there was a redheaded guy from the University of Chicago who put oil or something on his uh, hair, disguised himself and messed his face up with oil and forgot it was a September game, very hot. And pretty soon the oil's running down his face and they were figuring out that this guy really wasn't who he was. But even if you won a letter at say the university of Chicago, if Stag found out you played pro football, he detested it so much. He would take your letter away, even if you were 10 years out of school. And so other coaches felt the same way. There's a guy named Hanley, coach Hanley in Northwestern who agreed with with stag and just thought this pro football nemesis was horrible and it should be done away with. So my opinion is that the colleges were so afraid of the competition, which they need and the crowds. It took, as I said earlier, about 40 years to even start matching what the colleges were drawing. I think it was a financial fear and not so much of anything else, but um, they would keep up this diatribe against pro football of course, we had a couple of hiccups along the way. Uh, one was the famous Taylorville, Carlinville game in Illinois, where guys from Notre Dame and Illinois played under assumed names, representing town teams, and they got caught. And the Packers, a lot of people don't know, were kicked out of the league at the first year they joined in 22 because they were using a college guy under an assumed name. They let the league let the back in the next year. And then in 25, it was a big scandal when Greg Grange came from the University of Illinois. His team had completed their schedule. George Hellis interpreted the fact that he would be eligible to play pro football. So we signed him the day after. And Chris Willis, uh, who you had on a couple of weeks ago, did a phenomenal book on Red which goes deeper that said, you know, some of these negotiations were going on well before he was actually signed by the Bears. But that was more ammunition for the college folks to say, oh man, these guys are picking away our, the cream of the crop and they should have let Red Grange graduate with his class. And that's again, another example of how horrible football is. And then the worst thing that could have happened was in 1925 when the Milwaukee Badgers played the Chicago Cardinals in Chicago, came to town with not enough players and recruited four high school guys from Englewood High School. And when that got out, pro football was looking horrible and more horrible all the time. So I think that's a lot to do with it. Baseball, you weren't expected to go to college. Anybody could play who was good enough. It seemed to be the American way. It started after the Civil War, where football was this newcomer using college players, taking advantage of them for their own grubby deeds and trying to line their pockets with finances. My opinion it was finances and the colleges were going to do all they could to push back against the threat of pro football back there in the twenties and thirties. 
It's interesting to hear you talk about that because, you know, now the whole mantra is, you know, college players getting to the next level. And then in that era, the level should have been college, even if tried to go beyond that. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> it makes you wonder what what guys like Stag and Zepke, you know, back then would think of where college football is at now. Oh, wouldn't which that in be essence, amazing? Yeah. Which in essence, I mean, college football players are going pro before leaving college mm-hmm. and still playing college ball. And yes. uh, it's a, it's a brand, it's a brand new world. It's, it, it's, uh, it's interesting just how far we have come in terms of what, you know, back then, even too, the Olympics was all amateur. Now, you know, we're watching mm-hmm. the Olympics this week, you know, I just got done listening to the, to the Japanese beat the, the U S and it's all pro players. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very, it's, it's very, how things have come so full circle in a century. It, it is amazing. You mentioned the Olympics and I'm always looking like, wait a minute, how can that person be playing for France? I know they, they're from a U.S. college and, and there's a big sports collector show in Chicago this weekend. And it was the first time they had college players selling their autographs, $150 really? for the Oklahoma quarterback. Perfectly where, wait, legal. Wait, where did I miss this? I did not see this in the news. <laughs> yeah. Was this out at Rosemont? Yep. The one in Rosemont. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, well, it's probably a good thing. My wife kept, I didn't know about it. Cause I would have asked mm-hmm. my wife to go and she'd be like, yeah, no, I don't think so. That's one of our usual stops. We didn't make it cause we had some family commitments, but I, I kept starting to nudge towards the car to get up there, but next time we'll get there. <laughs> I just love strolling through the aisle and say, whoa, there's a picture from 1916 of uh, Harvard playing Yale in football. So neat yeah. stuff. Oh, yeah. And I can imagine you know, memorabilia. I've, um, you know, I'm kind of limiting what I buy now because it's just, yeah, you see it like, oh, wow, really, really? especially programs. I'm yeah, a sucker yeah. for, for oh, programs. Yeah. yeah. And um, so, you know, talking about, so we were, you know, I started off my original question as to why Chicago is really, to me, the epicenter of the professional football world. So you've got two teams in towns. you got the Bears and you got the Cardinals. Now, everybody pr- nowadays thinks of, when they think of Thanksgiving, they think of the Lions game and they think of the Cowboys. But back then, it was the Bears and the Cardinals. It was. In fact, they started a streak in the mid-20s of playing on Thanksgiving Day. And it was kind of nuts because they didn't take the next week off. They would play again on Sunday. So would probably play on Sunday, Thursday, Sunday. And going back to their to their rivalry, there was always disagreements on who would host it, when they would host it, because schedules were still put together in the 20s on the run. But yeah, they would they would get together and one of the best examples in 1923 when the bears and Cardinals together and uh, Greg, you've heard this story before, but uh, Patty Driscoll, the star player of the Cardinals was running around end and George Hallis and Joey Sternerman, the brother of Dutch, not only tackled Driscoll, but upended him and tossed him head first to the ground, knocking him out. And Driscoll kind of woke up and shook himself out of a daze and, started swinging. He, he landed one on Joey Sterneman, who was five foot six and Patty was only five foot nine, but so much bigger guy. And he knocked Joey Sterneman out. Uh, pretty soon players from both teams were involved in the, in the fracas on the field. Then the fans started coming out 
And there was a great quote from Ed Healy, who the week before had become the first free agent in NFL history, saying something like, oh, my gosh, I'm standing there. I just signed for $100 a game, and I'm about to lose my life. Here comes that El Capone crowd with guns on their hips. And sure enough, Hellas, there was one story that Hellas said he was woke up from being knocked out and some guy was straddling him with a pistol to his head. Now, as the police were called, the horses came on the field and they broke it up. And the best part of that story was in his autobiography, Hellas said, yes, we lost six to nothing, but everyone had a good time. <laughs> and that's kind of what started some of these games with the bears and Cardinals and their intense rivalry and, all sorts of good stories there. And that's why I decided kind of to write a book about it, which is the, the next one coming out. So many fun things uh, about how the two teams together and we fun loving fans who would set fire to the bleachers if they weren't warm enough, snowballs and icicles being thrown at the players on the opposite team. So all good fun in Chicago back in those days. But that really was the start of the Thanksgiving rivalry before, right. as you said, the Lions or the Cowboys got involved later. Yeah. Well, it's always, I always look forward to every year when the Packers and the Bears play. There's always that graphic on TV, the oldest rivalry in the NFL. Ooh, and ooh, usually about five ooh. seconds after that pops up, there is, there is a post or a tweet from a post, a Facebook post or a, a tweet from you going, well, you know, just, I can, I can hear the, I can hear the, and I'm the same way too, because yeah. it's, it's, you know, you, uh, we both know the history of, you know, and the Bears Packers rivalry is truly the most intense one. And I always joke with people, you know, I joke with people, I Packer fans are my, my best friends, but man, come game time, the Bears and Packers, you know, yes, I am a Cardinals fan, but I'm also sure I'm also a homer too. So when the yes, Bears are playing, yes. it's like, you know, and you know, Bears have not had much luck against the Packers. We all know that. But it's always fun to watch it, especially when the Bears are winning, just to watch the Packers side kind of lose it. And <laughs> but going back to you know the Bears have had, the Bears and Cardinals, and again you're writing a great you're going to be writing a book on. I can't wait to read it. But ha have had some great games over the years. It you know during those years when the Cardinals were just horrible, they were always up for that Bears game. They were a good example, and and it goes on both sides. It seems uh, I'm going to give an example of 1935. The Cardinals were tied with the Lions. All they had to do is beat the Bears in the last game to win the Western Division. Of course, the Bears beat them. The Cards would return the favor throughout the years. In the early 50s, there was a huge upset when the Cardinals, I think, only won one or two games, played the Bears, and just blasted them. So there was all that rivalry, no matter who was doing what. But, yeah, I agree, too, that the Bears and Packers rivalry is really intense. Of course, once the Cardinals left, they didn't play two or three times a year or even once uh, that often. They're going to play again this year, December 5th, so I'm looking forward to that one. Are they uh, playing here or are they playing there? I believe they're in Chicago, yeah. Oh, that's December 5th, though. I don't know. I might, might be, be a, more, more comfortable watching it on my TV. Yeah, it might saying. be too warm for you. You know, you like a little colder. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, kind of cool that you still, be, you know, for people who still follow the teams after they, they move. The weird thing with me is I grew up a Jets fan. I was a big NFL fan. Uh -huh. And in the NFL, I like the L.A. Rams. But then when the Rams moved, it's like, eh, they're not the Rams anymore. Uh -huh. I don't care about the St. Louis Rams. But then when they finally returned to Los Angeles, I started following them again. Oh. So I'm, I'm kind of, a, I guess, a fair weather kind of person when it comes to that. But for you guys to continue to, to carry the – 
for a team that's in Arizona now. That's well, that's, that's pretty I, cool, Joe. I don't know, maybe you've heard me say this before, but you know, for years I, you know, I had a second job uh, one one week in a month out out in Arizona, and um, you know, I always refer to the Phoenix area and the, actually the whole state of Arizona as the far, far, far western suburbs of Chicago because you go out there. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I would say, you know, probably about a good quarter of the people are out there are either from Chicago or their parents are from Chicago. Yeah, yeah. It is it is very much um, it is you just Portillo's isn't and you you go to, you know, you (laughs) Joe, you've been you've been you've been in Arizona. Oh, yeah, Portillo's. It's like now the one thing you can't get in Arizona is a good Chicago style pizza. But that's a whole nother issue. Right. Yes. Uh, yeah. That's a yeah. sensitive topic. When people say you want to get pizza, I said, nah, nah. <laughs> well, our pizza is more like a casserole, but it mm-hmm. serves the purpose too. Mm-hmm. How long, you know, how long you got to wait for it? And yeah, I'll wait an hour for a pizza. Yeah, it's, yeah. But uh, yeah, that's, you know, pizza and football, the two things that Chicago is, well, baseball too, but, but when it comes to, so with the Cardinals, let's, let's talk about how, the championship years of the Cardinals. Now there's only been two, three, okay. There's been got 25, but 25 is kind of a controversial year right? Yeah. because of uh, how that championship was awarded. Can you mm-hmm. tell, tell us about that? Yeah. 25 is probably the most controversial year in the NFL. And that's, we uh, talked about earlier, the high school players playing from Milwaukee and back then, the league had no set schedule, but it had an ending date. In that year of 25, it was December 20th. So the Cardinals were neck and neck with the Pottsville Maroons, two good teams. And this story is complicated, and there's arguments on both sides, and I understand that. Uh, the Cardinals played Pottsville and lost, but it was mistakenly billed as the world's championship, even though it wasn't, they didn't have a playoff at that date. And it was just another game. And so that was, uh, I think early December teams could still play for three more weeks. So, uh, as is common, the Cardinals, as did nine other teams continued scheduling games after the first of December Cardinals scheduled games against Hammond, who they had lost to earlier in the year and against Milwaukee. And they won both quote, easily and a controversy came out then about the high school players that the Cardinals game against Milwaukee then should be taken off the schedule which it never was it probably should have been but that allowed them to take a half game lead or so on Pottsville Pottsville also then scheduled another game against the Notre Dame all stars it would be bringing back the four horsemen from the 1924 season to play Pottsville in 1925 and the NFL commissioner had told Pottsville that they can't play that game, but uh, Pottsville had talked to someone in the league office who I believe was not really a member of the staff who apparently gave the head for that. And then it went back and forth to, to say who gave permission, or who did not. But anyway, in the long run at the league meeting in February of 26, uh, Pottsville had already been removed from the league. Therefore they're not eligible for the championship. Cardinals still had that half game lead because they never got rid of the Milwaukee game from the standings. So uh, controversy continued because Chris O'Brien, the owner of the Cardinals refused the title when it was awarded him by vote of the owners of the national football league. And that's how the league was decided with no playoff. They would vote 
as to who was the champion. Sometimes there was a controversy whether games were played were legal or not. So uh, the league was really in need of a firm schedule and a playoff system, which did evolve later, later in the early 30s. So that was a controversy that the Cardinals uh, were awarded the championship. Pottsville was removed from the league. Then like the Packers were a couple of years earlier, they were reinstated the next year when Grange and CC Pyle, his manager, started the new football league in competition. And so the NFL wanted as many of their former teams in there as well, including Pottsville. So uh, that's kind of how it went. Still controversial. Uh, people think one team or the other won it, but the Cardinals are recognized as a champion a league vote in February of 1926. And, um, and so, oh, Scott, I'm sorry. No, no, I was fine. I was just making a weird noise. Go ahead. Oh, well, <laughs> don't mind the noise. We got landscaping here. This is one of those. It's the Monday where all the landscapers descend uh, on the neighborhood and cut all the grass. So that's what you're hearing in the background. I apologize. <laughs> um, but, you know, talking about systems. So the league had developed. And, and so Burt Bell back in the 30s came up with the idea of the draft. Mm -hmm. So the next time around the Cardinals, the next championship for the Cardinals was in that 47 48 where they had some good teams and so that that team was developed through the draft correct in terms of it was yeah and um so tell us about those years because those are kind of what i always term the lost chicago football years because chicago had championship play it just wasn't on the north side it was on the south yeah. side mm -hmm. yeah the bears had some great uh title winning teams of sid luckman in the early 40s of course the war broke everything apart and most of the Cardinals roster went away. In fact, in 1943, you've heard this story that Pittsburgh and Philadelphia merged to form the Steagles. And then before the Bears and the Cardinals wanted to get together and the league said it would be too powerful a squad. So the Cardinals merged with Pittsburgh and the old story, they were called the card pits, but they were so horrible. They were like a, a piece of carpet that everyone walked over. So that's when they were called the carpets. But that led us then, the, the draft still continued and players would come out of college. For example, Charlie Trippi was drafted uh, during the Warriors, I believe, even though he wasn't with the team till 47, he went back to college. Um, other players uh, like Elmer Angsman and Pat Harder, uh, we're joining guys who had been with the team and then players who had seen action in the war that came back, but it went from the Cardinals going on a streak from 1936 to 1945 without having a winning season to ending up six and five in 1945. And they got a little better than next in the 1947, they were nine and three and won the title. So they were overloaded with talent. They had, as we mentioned, not only the draft choices coming in, such as Charlie Trippy, but the veterans returning, plus the guys who had stayed with the team who maybe didn't qualify for a service or had come back from service early. So it was a powerful team, but a lot of the teams in the NFL were really strong at that time. And the Cardinals won in 47. And then in 48, which in my opinion was the best Cardinals team in history, they were 11 and one. Uh, played the championship game against the Eagles in Philadelphia in a blinding snowstorm or blizzard. There's some great things on YouTube that show some of the circumstances. And that's one of the things we'll never see again in football history. The field was covered with snow and players from both teams helped not only shovel off the field, 
by hand, but get together and remove the tarp. So can you imagine some of the players today being asked to move the tarp? No, I don't think you'll see it. But unfortunately, the Eagles won 7-0 on a, after a Cardinals fumbled deep in their own territory late in the game. And that 1947 championship then is the last for the Cardinals. And in all of professional sports, no team has gone longer without a championship except those poor Cardinals. So next year will be 75 years unless they somehow break that streak this year and win the Super Bowl. Well, I don't know. It's it's I think the Cardinals this coming season are, are if 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 the Cardinals can't make it to the show this year with the lineup, the talent they have assembled on the field down there, I don't know. I don't know when they're going to do it because I'm looking at uh, looking at the upcoming season and looking up at the lineup going, yeah, I don't see how they can lose, but knowing the Cardinals Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see a lot of the experts are picking them to go eight and eight, but we always hold hope that this is going to be the year. And, uh, you know, there is always, and it goes back to that rivalry with the Bears. I mean, the, the most famous game, I think, the Bears, at least in the modern era, was the Monday night game between the oh, Bears right. and the Cardinals. Yeah. And Denny Green lost it after the game. And that's still a great clip in terms of. It just kind of said everything just about the frustration of the franchise. And again, yeah. I love, I'm, I'm, you and I are both hardcore Cardinals fans. We love the underdog, but being a Cardinals fan is much like being a Cubs fan too, because you have that. Well, for instance, what the Cubs went through this past week, pretty much <laughs> ditching the whole entire team. Like, Oh, we're back to the Cubs the way things used to be. This is, yes. uh, you know, we don't want to get used to winning. No, let's, let's. Uh, so um so talking, so after the Cardinals won, you know, the championship, then, then we move on. Then it's kind of in a way, at least when, you know, after reading your book and I, you know, the great thing about reading a history book is, you know, how things end. Mm-hmm. However, you don't know the why until you read the history book. So from 48 to 59, kind of what happened in terms of what, why was there such a decline in the team? Do you think? I know, obviously, Bidwell had died. Mm-hmm. So was it an ownership? Was it, uh, what, what was it? What do you think? I was lucky enough to interview a lot of the players while they were still around for that book, which is many came out shortly before the battle of the Alamo. That's how long it's been around, <laughs> but they would always point to Walter Wolfner, who was the husband of Violet Bidwell uh, after Charles died. And Again, as I said earlier, not a football man. And he made a lot of the decisions that were were really hurtful to the team in terms of player negotiations and upsetting the players. Players said that Bidwell had treated them so well, and now they were still taking buses when other teams were flying and uh, not completely honest. My book, when it came out, Pat Summerall did the introduction, which was fantastic. But little known story I share once in a while is that his first draft was very derogatory and had nothing to do with the book or about the book. It was about the Cardinals because he was upset that he had asked, was he going to be traded? And he was told by Wolfner, no, no, you're our guy. You know, we need you. And so he bought a house that was a big deal in the fifties. And then like a week later he was traded and he's had that short fuse burning all those years and so the publisher had to ask him if he 
maybe just write something different about the team history and <laughs> not about his own personal feelings. So I think a lot of the bad non-football men were involved with that. If I'm might be mistaken, but I believe the Cardinals in the 1950s were the worst decade ever in terms of win-loss percentage for an NFL team in history. And they didn't seem to do well either on drafting people. Uh, no one player said that their drafting was done by reading magazines. And so they would read and see who might be one of the top players and then draft them. Uh, they weren't able to offer a lot of money because their attendance was very low and uh, just didn't have the finances. So I, I it was a combination of a non-football person being involved in football decisions, a lack of money, and then just going through all sorts of coaches during that decade. And as we know, Curly Lambeau was brought in after the Packers and he had a disagreement. He came down from Green Bay and he only lasted uh, less than two years. And it was said that he didn't really have that much interest. He wasn't showing up for practices, et cetera. But uh, they went through a lot of coaches. Uh, coaches were real frustrated, didn't have the resources, I guess. And so that led to the Cardinals declining attendance and ultimately their move in March of 1960. And then there was also, I mean, they had talent. They had Ollie Matson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there was that trade. And that <laughs> trade was probably one of the worst trade. It, you know, you would think for the amount of players involved, it would have, well, it would have benefited the Cardinals. Yeah. yeah. But it, it didn't. Tell tell people about the trade. Yeah, the um, trade was a little bit of a surprise and it was engineered by Pete Rosell, who was uh, working with the Rams at the time before he became the NFL commissioner and managed to pry Ali Matson loose, who was one of the leading rushers, receivers in the National Football League, a silver medalist at the 1952 Helsinki Olympic Games, well-loved in Chicago and traded for, I believe, nine players, none of which ever made an impact with the Cardinals. And when you think uh, you talked about the Chicago Cubs trades last week, a lot of people are saying, well, who'd they get for Brian? Who'd they get for Rizzo? And you think, oh, they're 19 year old rookies or they're untested. And, and so I think the Cardinal fans are looking at that list and saying, well, what do we get for these guys? Well, there's supposedly a couple of starters there, but they never really panned out for the Cardinals. So yeah, there was uh we're, we're some talent there with the team throughout the fifties, the but not enough talent. And then when they turned around and had that fire sale of Ollie Madsen, and, and I think that really affected the, again, attendance in their fan base because the product putting on the field didn't seem like they were investing enough in the team and to let a talent like that go. And at first you think, Whoa, nine players, they can rebuild the team and be a contender just didn't work out. And I think because, they didn't do their homework on who they were actually getting. They almost said, well, the Rams, Pete Rosell said, well, here, take these guys. We know they're not going anywhere. Well, uh, we'll buckle, buck up this trade to get Ollie Matson. And there really wasn't anyone there that really helped them out very much in the future. And, um, and so that was kind of the, that whole, that was kind of sort of the big, really in a way, as I read your, read your book, and knowing the history that I know, it seemed like that was kind of the beginning of the end of the bears in Chicago. Do you, uh, in terms, I mean, they, they left in 59, but like you said, that was the, the lost decade. And yeah. if the Cardinals were to stay in Chicago, if the Cardinals would have had a much better record, do you think, and this again, just an, asking for an opinion, do you think they might have stayed in Chicago? Yeah, better record probably would have meant bigger crowds in the television era was starting to kick off with that famous 58 game playoff game. Um, called one of the best games in history with the Colts. And 
maybe uh, if they were competitive yeah. fans would have gone maybe they might have gone to soldier field permanently and started filling that place up i do believe chicago is a big enough place that can support well, I think baseball does that now. Support we, two two professional teams in football. We do, and it's it's been surprising this year to see actually people. Let's 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 face it. Chicago has always been a Cubs town, but when yeah. the White Sox are winning, it's nice to see people in the stands down on the South Side because that it, it's just a hard. So for whatever reason, the South Side has always been a harder draw than say the north side and obviously i think you and i both know a lot of that has to do with the stadium not the teams yes yes the state you know i mean wrigley field is it's it's an amazing place for those who are listening have never been to wrigley field if you ever come to chicago it's really right up there on tops of you know places to see and really the best joe have you ever been to wrigley on an off day yes years ago though yes I did okay. So after the Cubs won the World Series, my 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 bucket list thing was okay. I need to get up and get a tour of Wrigley Field, and so my wife and I, April, perfect, and it felt like a fall day. Really felt it was a football day. Got the grand tour of Wrigley Field, and went all over. And it was really cool because not only did you get to go on the field and sit in the dugout and visit, you know, I always say the ghost of sports live at Wrigley Field because if you look at our history American sports history Wrigley Field plays a huge it plays a major part in American sports history both not only baseball but football and and so when we did that tour went into the visitors locker room the same visitors locker room that had been used ever since the visitors locker room had been built and my I sat there with my wife and just kind of sitting down. I'm listening to them talk. And my wife's like, what's wrong? I go, I can hear ghosts. And she's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I go, I can hear Unitas. I can hear Lombardi. You know, just that feeling that you are in the presence of literally greatness of yes. all the people that have come through there. And it's, it's an amazing experience to, you know, to sit in, in a stadium that is still around. It's over a hundred years old that played such a, really a key role in the growth of professional football in this country. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and I'm sorry, I'm digressing here. I'm, we <laughs> I'm, love I'm going down memory lane here, <laughs> but so the Cardinals were at the end of at the 1950s and it, 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 so they went to, they went to soldier field with soldier field. Why did they go to soldier field in that last year? That's a great question. And I'm trying to figure that out myself because Soldier Field was really, I'm going to use a bad word. It was a dump then. It was really falling apart. It wasn't used that much. It was used for the Pan Am games right. uh, around that time, I believe. But for football, it was it was tough. It was still that big horseshoe, as we talked about earlier, still held well over 100,000 people. But part of the contract that I saw, and again, we look at the Washington Library and some of the resources I found a contract. Um, the Cardinals that the city of Chicago would agree to, or the park district would agree to make uh, certain changes in the field to make it more hospitable. If I said that word correctly for football in the 1959, I, I always sense that there was some, a little bit of um, 
not hostility between Comiskey Park and the Cardinals. Of course, in 59, the White Sox went to the yeah, World Series right. I as well. About that. I forgot about so that. Yeah. There may have been that the Sox didn't want to risk anything by having the Cardinals come in there. They had done that earlier. And it was like 1926 or 24, I forget, where they said the Cardinals couldn't, they couldn't use the stadium. Okay. And of course, in then 1926, the new league with uh, Joey, Joey Sterneman had a team called uh, the Chicago Bulls, believe it or not, that played and took Comiskey Park. But my, my just feeling is that maybe the Cardinals got a little better deal, being that they were right. up for cash in 1959 to go to right. Soldier Field. And hopefully that the changes that the Park District was going to make would be fulfilled. But after they left, I think the Park District tried to nail the Cardinals for costs that they had been promised that weren't paid. <laughs> I'd have to look into that. But yeah. that wasn't uh, too hard to believe either. Right. We talk about George being tight. Uh, in my second book about Morgan Park Military Academy, I found out with the Cardinals had a nice contract there to do their preseason training. Right. And, yeah. I meant to mention that earlier in the show. I mean, so, Morgan Park was, you know, I mean, they, they, they did for years. They, they trained yeah, there. They were there and they paid $2.50 per person per day for room board practice facilities. Cardinals forgot to pay the bill and they left. Oh my gosh. So it wasn't just George Ellis. <laughs> and, uh, and during that last season, the, the Cardinals played not only home games at, at Soldier Field, but they were also playing home games elsewhere, specifically Minneapolis. And was that, it was that them just trying to figure out if they were going to move to Minneapolis because this is right when the AFL was starting to form, was this, you know, was this, or was this just a way to make, get more, you know, get more money from a tent from the gate? Yeah. And case, I think it was financial. They played two games in Minneapolis, both drew over 20,000, which was good for the Cardinals and uh, don't have the contract, but it sounded like it was a pretty sweet deal yeah. that they would go up there and like they had done for some other exhibition games and they would get a majority of the gate right off the top. So uh, right. it would make it worthwhile financially for them to go to Minneapolis and also could check out and who knows, maybe they were looking at that as a possible destination yeah. uh, for a, for moving the, the franchise. Right. Well, and speaking of destinations now, people that are listening to this and a lot of our people, a lot of our listeners are in Canada. So a lot of them are playing. Okay, why is this? Why is why are they talking about Chicago football? Your Canadian football podcast. <laughs> so explain. You know, let people know here. For and there are people who know, but there are a lot of people who don't know why the Chicago Cardinals or the why the Chicago Cardinals factor into a little CFL history. Um, if you could go, I'll 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 give you, I'll cede the floor to you to to lay out that history and for everybody who's listening north of the border. Yeah. Let me give you a couple of fun stories. One would be uh, 1953 Cardinals signed a halfback from Syracuse called Avita stone, great running back, also a good punter. And so he reported to training camp. He had gotten a $200 bonus, believe it or not. And then um, a couple of days later, he asked for an advance of $500, which the Cardinals were glad to give to him. This was a promising young player. And then he disappeared. No one knew where he was. They tried to track him down to his wife. And his wife said, oh, he's in Canada. Said, what? Apparently he had signed with Toronto. But when his flight went to Toronto, he kept going and he left. And I believe he went to Ottawa. 
So he skipped out on his contract with the Cardinals and, and with his promises to Toronto and went with Ottawa. And he left Chicago where he was missing on uh, August 17th of 1953. And August 19th, he was in the lineup and Ottawa lost a game, uh, but he was in the lineup. They lost 12 to nine to Edmonton. And a fun part of that, when I was looking up that game, that it was 70 degrees and the newspaper uh, called it sweltering. So uh, that's the sweltering 70 degree heat. Now, those of you from Alabama might not agree with that description. Oh, man, 70 degrees would be heaven. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, he had signed with the Cardinals in July. He was in the Canadian League by August. He played there for several years. He was an all-star in 53 and 55, and he won the the Jeff Ruge, if I'm pronouncing that right, Russell um, Memorial Trophy as the best player in the Eastern division in 1955. So he was the, uh, the best player in, the, in that league. So Toronto thought they had him. He went to Ottawa. Uh, in fact, his, there was some controversy there because his mother claimed she received money from a Canadian team that was not named uh, for to influence him to go up to uh, play in Canada. So the Cardinals immediately, threatened to sue both him and the whole Canadian football league because of this uh, contract problem that he accepted their money under false pretenses, but nothing really ever came of it. He enjoyed a nice career. He came back to the national football league for one game in 1958 as a punter for the Colts. So he enjoyed a four or five year career in Canada before his, uh, he injured his knee and had to leave football. And he uh, went on and lived until the year 2000. So he was uh, one of the greats from Syracuse. And then, of course, was able to play in in the Canadian League. So I think we made a nice tie in there. But I think the better story is in 1959, August 5th, the Cardinals decided to play Toronto in an exhibition game. And this was a a fun one because uh, teams had tried to play before and had not been able to agree on the rules. And in this game, they decided that if the Cardinals had the ball, there would be 11 men on the field on both sides. And if they had the ball, there would be 12 men on the field on both sides. But the Cardinals, uh, even before that, had traded uh, one of their players, a guy named Jim Taylor, to the Hamilton Tigers uh, the day before that game started. So there was some, some connection between teams. And I noticed in doing some research for this game that uh, there was a a lot of anticipation, uh, not only in the rules, but perhaps the uh, big crowd that would come out. They anticipated it would be the biggest crowd ever to see a, a football game in Canada. And some of the, the rules that were played would allow unlimited blocking, which was different uh, in, in Canada at the time. And of course, I mentioned the different types of numbers on the field, be 12 or 11. And Toronto's coach was guy, uh, named Ham Poole, who played for the Bears in the early 40s, had a nice career for three or four years. A little bit of an eccentric guy. It seemed like wherever he coached uh, after that, uh, he would have difficulties with either the player or the other members of the coaching staff. So I won't get into anything with his uh, descendants, but uh, he was let go from a couple, of, a couple of teams he coached with. He had a really successful career coaching in the NFL, but – when he heard about the, the blocking rules, he was all for using the U.S. rules for that. In fact, he said, uh, football is blocking and tackling, and any rule that prevents a player from doing it by fair means is a rule which is not in the best interest of the game, he said. So 
that was Hampool giving a little bit of a speculation before the game. And they were hoping that there would be a big gate and the Toronto general managers were expecting a guy named Lou Heyman said, we're expecting 25,000 or better if they get a good break in the weather. But this would be the first game by an NFL team in up in Canada to play in nearly 10 years and the first game ever in Toronto featuring an NFL team. But the teams did set uh, a record for attendance. Uh, the Cardinals won 55 to 26, but what was the surprise was that uh, the Cardinals fell behind the first quarter 13 to 1. And a quarterback named Ronnie Knox, who was supposedly on loan from the Bears, was just tearing the Cardinals apart. Uh, he was past mad, had a, a great passing day. I think he was 23 of 26. But the overwhelming size of the Cardinals eventually took over and they won fairly easy. Um, Knox completed 19 of 23 passes, I'm sorry, for 219 yards. But the crowd was uh, what was the big story. Uh, almost 28,000 people showed up. And that was, of course, the biggest crowd to date uh, to see a football game in Eastern Canada and the greatest turnout for any preseason game in the history of the league. So the Cardinals won that game. Uh, a former Cardinal named Dave Mann, uh, to you are correlation between the two teams. He scored two, uh, both the touchdowns or two of the touchdowns for Toronto. Of course, there was some criticism thereafter. One was traffic before the game said it took people, they were getting out of the cars. It sounded like Woodstock in 1969. They're getting out of their cars and walking the last mile to get the game. They didn't get there till halftime. Uh, because of the huge crowd. But the big thing was everybody made money. With uh, 27,700 fans, the gate was $118,000. And uh, the Toronto team paid 15% uh, of the gate for rental to the Canadian National Exhibition, which is about 18,000. Uh, they paid expenses to the Cardinals for traveling and promotion. And that left 90,000 uh, to be split between the two clubs. So the Cardinals were happy. They walked away with uh, at least $45,000. And the only ones who were unhappy were those who had to walk a little bit to get to the game. Some interesting side notes was Cookie Gilchrist uh, was playing for Toronto that day at linebacker. And the, uh, the uh, Windsor paper, I believe, said something that Cookie was outclassed in the Chicago Cardinal game, but has greater ability than he has so far displayed for the Argonauts. Of course, he became a... Quite a big name for himself in the NFL. So that was the, the big thing. We talked about quarterback Ronnie Knox, one of my favorite stories in all of football. He was a guy who went to three high schools because he couldn't find a coach he liked. He went to two colleges because he couldn't find a coach he liked. He left college kind of early. He was by the Bears, didn't show up for practice or for meetings. So Hellas supposedly loaned him, actually find him and dumped him. But in 1958 for Ottawa, he passed for 522 yards. And if I'm not mistaken, that's the still the second most ever passing yardage that a quarterback has had in the Canadian football league. But the next year, 1959, about a month after his great game against the Bears, he left football. He was getting paid $1,250 a game, but he said he didn't like football anymore. He was going to become a poet and he moved to Europe. So what a great story, Ronnie Knox. And therefore, I'll quit boring you about this game, but I was really excited to talk about it. That opportunity. 
Hell, oh, no, a book of no, poetry now. Yeah. <laughs> and then also, too, real quickly, just following on that, the Bears, did the Bears and the Alouettes play that same year? I think they did play that year. Yeah. And they played yeah. a couple of seasons. And, and then... uh, yeah, no, it's, you know, when uh, we had all this XFL talk going on for the last four months, and, you know, I know everybody's Twitter feed is different. So I imagine yours is much different than ours. But when you had all the, it's, it's interesting. And this is where I always say, history matters and during the time period between the announced the xfl talks to the time it ended there was all kinds of discussion as to well you can't make you know cfl plays by different rules and this and i'm like well there is a template there is a starting point to figure this all out again and then it's talking about when the nfl went to canada for those exhibition games to kind of just you know to, to play and you know, and so I always tell people, go back, especially on the American side, saying, hey, go back, read the history of those games. You know, the game in Toronto is a good example. You know, I did not realize that that was the, at the time, the largest crowd to see a Canadian game. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so history always, you know, I love, you know, we all love football history, sports history, and especially football history. And um is the CFL, they're facing a lot of challenges, as you well know. Sure. But the history of the game, the history of, God, how many is it? It's all over 60 years now. Still hmm. is applicable to a lot of things today. Yes. And um, so as you think in, with the, now obviously the Cardinals, the NFL is so much bigger nowadays. That it's, it's, <laughs> it's, yes. it's morphed and everything. But, and, and Scott, help me out here. I mean, you and I have had this discussion. The CFL is very reminiscent of the way football used to be in in the United States. Yeah, for me, when I watch it, I mean, even obviously it's a modern game being played, you know, 2021, but it's still, yeah, it is. I mean, it's still just kind of old school. I mean, I, I think a lot of it just goes back to how players seem to relate to the fans. They seem to be really a part of the community. And frankly, maybe it's even because of the smaller crowds. It just seems a little more intimate you know but uh well and that's why i always when i talk chicago football joe i always kind of wax poetically about that time period that you've written about with the cardinals and the struggles that they had because they're all you know anybody who loves football needs to go back and read the history books to understand where we are at today so yeah so with that said hey can you let everybody know a how to find your books B, where to find you on Twitter, where to find oh. you on the social media. Because you've got, you've, got, you've got a few places out there that are some that are great resources online that, you know, a little, our podcast, we don't have. Mm-hmm. So go, yeah. go ahead and tell. I'm sorry. Oh, no. Thank you very much. You know, and again, for the opportunity to talk about the Cardinals, I hope I didn't babble on too much, but I get excited talking about football history, but couple of places. Uh, the books are available on Amazon.com, uh, of course, uh, for both of the books. Although the book on the Cardinals, I must admit, is out of stock. It was There was a nice mention in Sports Illustrated a while ago, and that seemed to deplete the stock. We're hoping it'll get reprinted one day, uh, but copies are still available on Amazon. They are uh, second-generation copies, but the uh, second book on uh, Morgan Park Military Academy. Those are brand new spanking new copies, which are available. And they're also, if I are, are they available on Kindle now too? 
I think yes, I saw the Morgan uh, Park one too. Morgan Park is not the car one. So the Morgan okay. Park one is available on uh, an electronic version also through Amazon. So that, yeah. that would be there as well. And we do have a Chicago Cardinals Facebook page. And we've been lucky enough to have over 11,000 folks uh, follow that. And to reach it, just look on Facebook, search for Chicago Cardinals, or uh, more specifically, it's facebook.com slash Chicago Cards slash. And we also have a Twitter account, which covers uh, mostly all Chicago football history. We do a little bit of uh, Bears, Cardinals, high school, college. Uh, my uh, Twitter account is uh, Cards Etch Cards Chicago. So uh, can reach us there. And, and of course, and- our podcast on the Sports History Network and, and you gentlemen just do such a resoundingly uh, wonderful job on your program. Well, thank uh, you. We're on there with you and uh, we appreciate all you have done. And of course, the you bring the professionalism to that I lack on mine. So I really appreciate being partner <laughs> with you guys. Oh, I would debate that with you. I would definitely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you're 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 terrific. I mean, this this yeah. really has it's, it's been like uh, it's like been sitting in a class and just learning from a history instructor that you actually like. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and Joe, I, since I got you and it's recording, I'm going to tell you straight out. I mean, you're part of the reason why we're doing this podcast, because when I first met you, I was just this lone guy sitting, Hey, you know, I, I love the Chicago Cardinals. Boom. Your book came out and, you know, I devoured that years before you and I met and then there was that uh, there was that uh, the meeting at I forget which library it was. And unfortunately, I still feel horrible to this day that the library screwed up <laughs> the time and average because I was the only guy there. But I'm glad I was because I got time to, to spend with you and your wife. And mm-hmm. and then, you know, it was years. And then we uh, the next time we saw each other was at Oak Park I Had a good friend yeah. of mine from the Navy. And we listened to your, you know, listen, I mean, you've got great when we're out of this pandemic. Are you going to get back to doing hitting a lecture circuit? Yeah, we'll do a couple this fall already. Not doing a lot. Uh, we'll be in Northbrook and I'm going to be seeing those on the Chicago Cardinals Facebook page. Um, there's another one. Uh, I should remember. Northbrook's anyway, kind of a hall for me, man. Yeah. The other one is on the near <laughs> north side. <laughs> so I'll have to put those on. So uh, you doing Downers Grove or Oak Park or anything close? Oh, and the other, you know what? And the other thing too, I forgot to mention was your hall of fame exhibit. You did down at the Orland park library. Was it oh, two right. years ago now? Two years already. Yes. I can't believe that. Hard to believe, but yeah, we had a big uh, exhibit on the Cardinals. We yeah. hope to do that again sometime. I made a special trip down there to see it. Oh, thank you for being here. I, 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 you know, we were, I had, I'm like, my wife was like, what do you want to do today? I go, I want to go to Arlington Park Library. For what? Because Joe's got stuff there. And my wife, who is obviously not a football fan, but was really, really impressed by what everything. She was go, looking at it going, wow, wow. Now my wife's Japanese. So, I mean, it's, it's for her to see stuff like that. And I think it helped her understand my passion for football a little bit more. And, um, you know, so I thank you for that because, oh, you know, but you. you, you have, you know, you're kind of my mentor when I do when with the podcast and it was with, you know, when I reached out to Scott one day, and I'm like, let's do a podcast. You are, you are part of that reason for, for me doing, for us doing what we're doing and same with Arnie and, and same, you know, I always give a shout out to the guys over in Tokyo who did their, who do a CFL podcast ah. because 
I've learned, Scott and I have learned over in the last few months, and we've done a lot of podcasts, just how enjoyable it is talking football with friends. It is a blast. And um, yeah, I, this again, thank you for the opportunity. I should mention, I just remembered mainly because I looked it up. I'll be at the North Shore Public Library on September 20th. That's a Monday uh, for the next program that we'll be doing. But yeah, we sure. hope to do more uh, programs throughout the year. Um, and next year, pick it up. And so well, the Lincolnwood Library in uh, November 16th. Okay. Or as we say in Chicago, the North Shore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> over there. Over there. Over there. It's, uh, yeah, we got a whole bunch of them, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been, it's been awesome to talk to you today and for Scott and I and Joe, Hey, thank you for listening to us in the sports history network. And if you haven't already list, take a listen to Joe at when football was football, it's on the same place. You get all our podcasts. And Joe, Joe, you do 15 minute segments. I mean, you're, you don't have the hour and a half show like we have, but you have specific, you know, 15 minute, 15 to 20 minute lectures on different subjects. Like, you know, I said earlier about the college football, college all-star game. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What we try and do is do original research for each program. And so it's just me trying to put people to sleep with old foot history, but trying to find something people may not know about. Uh, for example, we did one on Hugo Bezdick, who was the only person to coach an NFL team as well as a Major League Baseball team. So little items that have that. popped I've up over the I've not listened to years. that one. Yeah, it's a, one of the original ones. And Mats Tonelli, the one from the oh, NFL yeah. to the time, back to the NFL. So uh, little personalities there that probably uh, always feel that oh, it'd be great to talk to people about this and spend some time digging yeah. up some additional information. So yes, thank you. Uh, that program is on the Sports History Network and it's called When Football Was Football. And and lastly, when's the book coming out? I don't have a date yet. Uh, okay. We do have a publisher. Uh, McFarland is going to be publishing it. And so we're I can't wait because there's so much new stuff, you know, when oh, you get yeah. excited about history. I'm exciting. And... Just knowing I didn't realize <laughs> that you were writing the book and I'm like, Oh wow. Yeah. This, this, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, well, Hey, thank you very much. And um, for everybody listening, we will be seeing you again real soon and um, signing off for Scott, Joe and I uh, thank you very much. Like I said, thank you very much for listening and Hope to uh, be back with you soon. Bye-bye. Wild coaches, they had some wild players in those days. They had guys who uh, were kind of inept, and uh, the best thing they could do is run as far as away from the defending lineman and throw the ball. And sometimes it took on a kind of a Charlie Chaplin-esque uh, appearance out there. In true slapstick fashion, the Chicago Cardinals of the 1950s walked a path laden with banana peels. Footballs were thrown like pies, and there were chases worthy of the Keystone Cops. Like slapstick movie characters, the Cardinals thrived on ridiculous situations that enabled them to display uncommon resourcefulness. From chaos, the Cardinals created high comedy, and it was high comedy created in a low-budget environment. We didn't have very good equipment. The Cardinals at that time 
the word class never never came close to us. Uh, we rode the train to games, train to Cleveland, train to Green Bay, wherever we went. It was just a, a it was not the big leagues. We played at Comiskey Park in those days, which was the home of the White Sox, so they used to sod the infield. And uh, we had scored a touchdown, so it was on the south end of the, of the field, which was the sodded uh, portion. And Billy Cross went in to hold for Joe Gary. Well, the ball was snapped. Joe goes through the motion, makes a kick, and ref throws his hand up in the air, uh, the stands all yell, and what had happened is that Joe had actually kicked a piece of sod over the, over the, had gone over the goalpost. And Billy Cross, I'll never forget, I happen to be looking at Billy and the look on his face, because there he is still holding the ball. The team was usually left holding the bag during a decade in which they totaled a mere 33 wins. They boasted but one true superstar, halfback Ollie Matson, whose speed made him seem less a man than a force of nature. I can remember hearing him go by. It was like the windstorm going by. And I never heard anything like that before. He was just so fast that uh, he'd created a breeze when he went by. Matson, number 33, was a rushing, receiving, and return threat whose many talents would earn him a place in the Hall of Fame. The cards got a lot out of Mapson, and when they eventually traded him, they got a lot for him, or so it seemed. The Cardinals traded Ali Mapson to the Los Angeles Rams for 11 ballplayers. Of the 11, nine had to be classified as garbage. Absolute garbage. I think six or seven of them never showed up because they were real dogs. The Matson trade was one of several unusual personnel decisions. We drafted a quarterback from Ohio State one year, number one. And we said, oh, super, boy, we needed a quarterback badly. And I, being a receiver, thought, I wish we'd get somebody to get the ball to me. And uh, lo and behold, the fellow showed up and started throwing a ball, and he couldn't get the ball 15 yards down the field. And we found out the reason they drafted him, because they liked his picture in the street in Smith. He had nice legs and looked well-proportioned and looked like a real football player. But even if the team's quarterbacks weren't picture-perfect, they did fit into an offense that somehow managed to move the ball forward without benefit of the forward pass. During the 1950s, sleight of hand was the Cardinals' trademark, and the tricks of their trade induced gasps of astonishment from an awestruck audience. Although we didn't win many games, we were exciting to watch because really sometimes the players didn't know what was going to happen. A lot of those plays really were not designed plays, needless to say. By looking at them, you could tell they weren't designed plays. I can remember the five head coaches that I played for in five years. And uh, sometimes they just throw up their hands in, in disgust because of the way that some of those zany plays would turn out. 
One head coach who devised creative methods of indicating his disgust was Joe Steidar. He had a very unique way of, of paying us. He'd bring in a fistful of brown envelopes, which contained our paychecks. And he would have seen the game films, and he would write a, a little note on each, each player about his performance in the previous game, such things as, I always thought you were, had no guts, and now after watching the film, uh, it's confirmed. And I remember once we had to play the Bears the last game of the season. And he came storming in the door of the dressing room, threw the checks across the dressing room. They scattered all over the floor. Told us to fight for our own checks. And he says, if you guys don't beat the Bears next week, I'm not paying any of you. Any of you. I'm finding you a, a game salary. Well, that's the only game we won that year. We beat the Bears at Wrigley Field 24 to 10. For a while, the Cardinals always seemed to cash in against the Bears. From 1950 to 1955, the Cards won six out of nine meetings from their more successful neighbors from the north side. This crosstown rivalry gave the Cardinals an opportunity to steal the thunder from the team that reigned supreme in the Windy City. The media, we felt, was always tainted towards uh, the north side, uh, the Chicago Bears. Uh, we never had that in, on the south side. I can remember playing games in Comiskey Park in the 50s where there were six or seven, 9,000 people in the stands. Uh, Wrigley Field was always sold out. But when the Bears went down to play the Cardinals in Comiskey Park, the place was packed. I mean, it was, and it turned into a riot every time. All the games I played against the Cardinals when I was with the Bears ended up in a fight. But while the Cardinals often won the battles, the Bears ultimately won the war for territorial rights to the Todlin town. In 1960, the Cardinals moved to St. Louis, signaling the end of a colorful era. During the 1950s, the Chicago Cardinals didn't produce many victories, but their offbeat and exciting style of play produced plenty of thrills and made them one of the most entertaining teams in NFL history.
This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Hello, football friends. This is Darren Hayes of the Pigskin Dispatch Podcast, and I'd like to invite you to the portal of positive football history, Pigskin Dispatch and PigskinDispatch.com. We talk about everything that centers around the game of American football, expert discussions, the origins of the games, the great players, teams, and coaches, and more, and some great guests and insights from experts. We have new episodes three to four times a week, and you can find us on SportsHistoryNetwork.com, PigskinDispatch.com, or your favorite podcast provider. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.